Welcome to Scripps Talks. My name is Bob Stewart, and for the balance of this week, I am the director of the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism, my last day being May 31st, and it's a real privilege to have on the podcast uh, this last week of my tenure as director, Clarence Page, a 1969 alumnus of the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism. Welcome to the podcast, Clarence. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Bob. Most of the conversations that I've had on this podcast series have focused on the coronavirus and how people are adapting to the to this reality that we're in. But given current events, I actually want to start with a different subject, and I'd like to invite you to give us some of your thoughts about the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Well, I'm still processing it myself. This is something that my wife and I were watching the video on television and both of us just stunned and, and appalled at and saying, how many of these have we seen here in the last couple of years? Uh, in other words, how many of these episodes of police misconduct, and that's what, what I call it, that resulted in the death of a black man, and then the, apparently they turned in a phony police report afterwards to cover it up. We've seen this happen in several different cities and towns around the country in recent years, and I'm struck by what a difference video makes. Now that everybody's got a TV studio in their hip pocket, when I worked in TV back in 1980, we actually had less technology in the whole control room than we have in our iPhones now. This has made a big difference now in our society and the ability of a video to give us a whole different side of what we have been originally told. And in this case, I'm just still astounded after all the the video that we've seen in recent years, all the debate and action, the legal action, etc., that we still have officers who conduct themselves the way you see it in this video. Uh, and this man, everybody talks about how much this episode resembles that of the um, a fellow in uh, New York. Uh, it's a very similar case where uh, a black man was being held by police and says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and he really couldn't breathe. The next thing you know, he's dead. And um, here we see it again now, only since in Minneapolis, and it's uh, which is also a place where we had another young black man who was killed on video here a couple of years ago or so. And uh, it's uh, the kind of story for, for me as a pundit, as a newspaper columnist and broadcast commentator, uh, my job, part of my job is to try to make sense out of uh, nonsense like this, stories that just don't seem to make sense and try to uh, give people a, a viewpoint to bounce their own opinion off of and uh, uh, in this case, I, I, I'm so weary of the same damn story happening again and again. And everybody knows what needs to be done. Everybody knows um, uh, what's right and what's wrong. Um, and yet this um, constant seeming inevitability of this sort of atrocity uh, is just generally depressing. And um, uh, But, you know, once again, I, I've got to pull myself together and... Um, uh, make some kind of a statement, some kind of a, of a uh, essay that's going to uh, help people, first of all, uh, help them process their own opinions and, uh, and also gives us some advice, some guidance as to what to do going forward. 
And this is something, uh, Bob, I got, I got to say, you know, one thing, I always wanted to be a commentator ever since high school. Uh, and um, uh, one of the big surprises to me, especially after 9-11, uh, was uh, how many people in the general public were actually grateful to me and my colleagues, my editorial board members of the Chicago Tribune, uh, uh, my uh, other friends who are part of the pundit circuitry here in Washington, uh, a lot of us actually got thank you notes from people after 9-11 saying, uh, thank you for helping me to understand, or thank you for, 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 for helping me to work this through my system here. And uh, I, everybody's looking for some guidance as to how to move forward and improve our lives, improve our society. And I feel like this is the first step in that. But um, it, it really is. Um, one, one gratifying thing is more people uh, understand. Fewer people have to be uh, persuaded that this is wrong and we need to, need to do something. But at the same time, there's still a debate going, going on out there. I inevitably am going to get notes I know from from uh, people on the, the other side in the sense that um, the, the people complaining that, that well, a, a black man killed uh, these elderly white people over here and didn't get uh, nearly as much coverage as this, as if this is strictly a race story, as if we're putting points on a board or something, you know, which side is, is the bigger victims. And that is unfortunate, an unfortunate message that, that drives a lot of our politics these days, too, that uh, uh, black people get all the attention and uh, uh, black people are, are, uh, are um, uh, getting an unfair advantage. Out of, out of being black and uh that is poisoning our politics now and it uh that too comes in the wake of big emotional atrocities like this one and so i think um i and, and uh, other people really have a uh, obligation to try to to um improve the discussion and and uh, move toward what do we need to do to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again or it doesn't happen as often, even if, if it's inevitable. You obviously are thinking a lot about the political realities of our time, the political tone or the political mood of the nation. And I'm wondering if, if it's fair to expect our president to say something on this particular case, or have we lowered our expectations to such a degree that this particular president would speak out on a topic like this? Yeah, the answer is yes on both counts, you know, uh, because let's be honest, we all know that the fact that Donald Trump's election is closely tied with these issues, that this has been a repressed discussion in our country. And this is why so many of us, people like me, were surprised to see Donald Trump's victory because there are a lot of people, you know, I grew up there in Southern Ohio and I've, uh, I've talked about how the economy around Middletown, Ohio and other industrial centers in Ohio, uh, Youngstown, Akron, Toledo, go on and on. Ohio is a perfect example of the post-industrial decline that we have seen in our country and also the post-industrial divide where those of us who have a little education, we have been able to move up socioeconomically while those who don't have schooling beyond high school 
have been in many ways devastated and feel ignored and overlooked. Frankly, I, you know, uh, growing up in, in that industrial area, being a former steel worker myself, that's how I've earned my money to get through Ohio U. And uh, also, uh, I, I worked in an anti-poverty program there in, in Appalachia in the late 60s. And I understand what these folks are going through who feel isolated and left out and uh, like to think that we can use journalism to help bridge some of these gaps and help us to understand each other. Donald Trump is a fellow who I, I will be kind and saying that everybody knows he is one who looks mostly at himself reflexively, and that doesn't bother his supporters all that much. I don't want to speak too generally, but various Trump supporters I've talked to, and I'm, talk, I'm talking about the hardcore supporters, because I also have uh, friends who uh, voted for Donald Trump just out of very practical reasons, not linked toward getting revenge, so to speak. Donald Trump is not known for his sensitivities toward people who are in distress. He does understand populist politics, and that's not a new thing in our country or the rest of the industrial world. We've certainly seen in both that uh, cases like this, uh, cases of uh, police misconduct that lead to uh, civil distress and civil unrest. We've seen it with the coronavirus crisis. There is an importance to having a national leader who doesn't just cheerlead, but also can console and feel empathy and express empathy toward people who are in distress in his constituency and also bring together the many factions that we have. I look back and see how well George W. Bush and his family get along with Barack Obama and his family now that they aren't in the White House anymore. It's a beautiful sight to see. That's America to me, where, yeah, we have political differences, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. Donald Trump, unfortunately, uh, has a real blind spot on that sort of thing. And uh, until he's urged enough by his aides, hey, you need to go out there and say something, he's a bit too slow for comfort. But that just puts it on the rest of us to stand up and do the right thing. I'm encouraged by the way Americans, once again, in these crises and others, eventually pull together and do the right thing. I was struck by a statistic somebody shared with me a while back that once the pandemic started, we didn't have any more school shootings. And that was because there was nobody in school. But a, a, a pandemic, even a pandemic, couldn't stop a George Floyd death. No, it couldn't. And this is such a double and triple shame because I've been trying to get more attention toward our police officers and other first responders and the kind of risks they've been taking and the casualties they've been suffering. The numbers of police in our uh, hot spots uh, have been really appalling who, who had gotten sick or died. It's like, like a hospital workers, you know. Uh, these are all folks who are working to try to fulfill their mission, help their local communities, and paying this price for it. I feel so fortunate to be in a position now where I can work from home, where I've got Zoom and Skype and Internet in general, and I'm able, and, and, and this gets back to the fact that I do have some schooling beyond high school that enables me to this kind of work. If I was still working the steel mill, it would be a different ballgame. And there is still a, um, all, all around us, uh, folks that I just marvel at how they're able to pull, uh, well, there, there are folks who know that for them and their families to eat, they've got to get out and work not just one job, but two or three jobs and uh, working around the clock still. Uh, folks around where I live who have been put out of work by their 
uh, say the the restaurants or or, or uh, other businesses uh, that, that uh, have closed down, they've gone out and gotten jobs with uh, Uber or other companies like that that are making home deliveries, which is uh, of course now a burgeoning industry in these times. Uh, Americans will hustle to take care of themselves and their families, but now it's like war zone conditions where I've got casualties all around me and I'm wondering, you know, if and when I'm going to be hit next. I've heard it said, and you've probably even written about this, that the virus has been a bit of an x-ray machine on the state of our, the health of our society. And it's showing a lot of inequalities, which we've understood were there, but now we're seeing that in a life and death setting. And I'm wondering if you think there will be the opportunity to learn lessons or will this be a wasted opportunity? And obviously I'm asking you to speculate. I think everybody is pulled into the game of where do we go from here? How much is this changing our society? How much are we learning about ourselves? Because in my own job, it's it's been uh, both bad and good. It's been bad in the sense that I'm a reporter. I like to get out in the streets. I'm part of the newsroom culture. I'm a columnist who, when I'm looking for column ideas, I just go out and talk with my colleagues during the newsroom. This is an age-old secret of our business. (laughs) uh, Looking for a column idea, go out and talk to your colleagues in, in the newsroom and look around and see which reporter has a story that boy, they would love to um, editorialize with their opinion about this, but but they can't because they're reporters. They've got to be objective in public. And I'm just more than happy to take that burden off their shoulders. (laughs) Tell tell me your gripes, your complaints. I will put it out there. That's part of the way we work. And you can't do that in this Zoom era. I meet with my editorial colleagues two or three times a week on Zoom. There are no side conversations on Zoom. Everybody's in the spotlight. Everything you talk about is universally shared with the group. It's a different kind of conversation, but at least it is a conversation. And I thank the Lord that we have Zoom. Now, Zoom came along just in time for the coronavirus. Look how much that's changed our lives. So it's been a right now uh, that we're getting more or less accustomed to working from home or uh, living a life of uh, food delivery and all. Where do we go from here? I think that a lot of people are going to reevaluate the value of their meetings and the quality of meetings, how much we gain by meeting on Zoom and crossing those distances and time uh, factors. And at the same time, though, um, how much do we gain by working in a, a live situation, being able to travel around and walk up to people on, on the street and, and ask their opinion on these issues. It's changing our lives, and a lot of other people in service industries uh, have to look at the future of their industries, just like we in the newspaper industry look at the future of newspapers. It, it certainly isn't on paper. We've all been actively engaged in changing in tune with the new internet era. And what impact will this have in the future? I think we are all learning even more value in the Internet. I feel increasingly, Bob, like an astronaut in a long-term space shuttle mission or something, because I'm here in my basement communicating with the world in ways that would have been hard to understand or imagine 10 or 20 years ago. But we did imagine it, but we weren't really ready for it. Now, Now we're living with it every day. 
Well, you did want to be an astronaut as a child, I'm sure. So this is your wish is fulfilled now. And yeah, <laughs> I, I realize now looking back that I, I did want to be an astronaut, but I realize now I really wanted to be Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, he's doing the job that I, that I had in mind, you know, be able to be Mr. Wizard, you know, uh, go out there and learn all this stuff and see and hear it all and then talk about it. I'm stuck on Earth, but nevertheless, I'm still in the same game. You wrote recently about the vaccine, the much heralded, or I should say, wished for and hoped for and prayed for vaccine. And yet right. a lot of people through surveys have indicated a reluctance to take a vaccine, at least as it would be coming out in its early phases. And I found that really interesting, but as I thought about it, maybe not so surprising. But I saw a documentary not too long ago about the polio vaccine and how people you know, were suffering with polio for multiple years. And to test it, they, they tested it essentially on people that back then would have been called retarded or mentally ill, you know, without any kind of permissions or, or acquiescing to this, it just was done to them. And then also in orphanages, but people just lined up, you know, for these because they were so desperate. I suspect we're just not as desperate as we will become if this continues to linger. The same thought process went through my head, Bob, which led to that column, because I'm part of the uh, Salk generation, you know? I was, when the vaccine, the Salk vaccine for polio was approved around 1953, was it? I, I, got, I got it in the column. <laughs> it's a, um, I was thinking about with this modern anti-vax movement, as they call it, uh, people who have been protesting against mandatory vaccines. I was looking at how Gee, this is a, a real product of our age of protest. Now, everybody protests something or everything, and the Internet has brought people together in communities electronically that might not have formed physically if we didn't have the Internet. So as a result, you've got causes pro and, uh, and against everything. I was thinking about, gee, we didn't have anti-vaxxers. When I went to get my polio shots back in Middletown, Ohio, I was like in the first or second grade. And uh, I just remember us, us lining up for the shots. Also, my parents being so grateful that, that this vaccine had come along because our generation and kids, ask your parents and grandparents, back in our generation, I couldn't go to the swimming pool in the summer because my parents were too afraid of polio. Word had gotten around that polio transmits in water, a lot like we talk today about COVID being transmitted on surfaces and through the air mostly. And that's why people are asked to wear masks now. Uh, there was some mask wearing back then, but it wasn't like now. At that time, everybody also knew somebody who had polio, who uh, was walking around with a leg brace, like uh, Forrest Gump for your youngsters who know that movie, uh, or um, uh, people who were in an iron lung or had a cousin or a friend who was in an iron lung, which was what they called the breathing apparatus that helped kids with polio that had hit their lungs and respiratory systems. All of these things were fixtures of, of the age then right after World War II and there into the early 50s. It was such a heartbreaker of a disease. I've got one friend now who went to the same Warm Springs uh, resort, if you will, which is what Franklin Roosevelt set up. And Roosevelt had polio. Uh, he set up a Warm Springs for other kids with polio. 
And uh, this friend of mine went to it, and she's close to 80 now. But one of her legs is still, you can see it's not as developed as the other leg because her leg was paralyzed for so long. I go through, through, through this long description because it was really quite dramatic. I mentioned this in my column when my own son was about five or six years old. For some reason, he was reading something which had been passed on to him, and he turned to me and he said, Dad, what's polio? Mm. And it really struck me. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a kid who's about the age I was when I had my shot, and he didn't even know what polio is. Back then, that's all people talked about. I was really struck by that, and I said, now, you know, this is, now we we got the coronavirus. Will people be as skeptical? Will there be as much debate now when we do get an approved virus or a approved vaccine? Will people be as skeptical or as rebellious? Saying, I've got a right not to get a shot. I've got a right to stand up and not be inconvenienced, whatever. I got some, some interesting reactions from people. Uh, uh, some folks said, said, hell yes, I'll get that shot. Uh, other, others said, hell no, I won't get that shot. Uh, and this is a mark of how divided we can be in the country these days. And what kind of a difference will that make on our actual health policy? I don't think the debate will be over just when the government announces, hey, we've got a vaccine approved. You've been punditing. Is that, I don't know if I can make that into a verb, but you've been at this column writing. (laughs) Yeah, that's better. Thank you. For your pretty much, the well, certainly the majority of your career, you've been doing it for decades, let's just say for decades. And this is uh, 1984, in fact, yeah. At some point, you're measuring the power of the center versus the fringes. We are seeing a time where the fringes seem to be with voices that are much louder, either because of social media or just the, the times that we're in. Do you think we can become even more extreme before a return to the center, or do you think we're at about the outer orbit of of where we would be as a society when it comes to having such different opinions? I often think about this. Are we uh, really that different from each other, or are we just louder? We have media now that enable people to broadcast to the world we also are able to hear a lot of opinions we wouldn't have heard otherwise. Either of those can be good or bad, depending on the circumstance. But I think on the whole, it's good. What happens, Bob, as you've noticed, people, certain things that, that can be really controversial or, or confrontational one year can be just normalized by the next year. So that we need something new to shock us even more than what shocked us before. There are certain, um, I was thinking about this, uh, I mean, examples come up every day. I was working on a piece on Joe Biden and his statement about if you have trouble, if you don't know the difference between me and Donald Trump, then, then uh, you ain't black. He says this on a black radio program. It was a, uh, a big controversy. I was immediately reminded of how Chris Rock had this monologue that helped launch his career, which he calls the black people versus the N-word in its plural form. I won't spell it out on the air. Uh, It it was a a joke that was hilarious, but has to be told by a black person, as was illustrated in one of the early episodes of The Office, when Michael, the white office manager, was managing Diversity Day and decided to break the ice uh, to tell the Chris Rock joke, which he shouldn't have been telling. (laughs) But it was so indicative of what can shock us. At the time that Chris Rock did this 
it was the N-word still had enough shock value that most people didn't use it on TV or radio. Now, even Chris Rock won't do that bit. He said he just won't do it now because people hear it in so many different ways and it's just too controversial. So there's a case of something that has become more controversial over time. On the other hand, we have numerous examples in issues like abortion or various words that used to be offensive and aren't so offensive anymore. All of these things, there's this circle of acceptability that is always changing. And so I think the acceptability circle changes faster now because of modern communications. So we we seem to, to be rocked by shifting tides. But at the same time, the majority of people aren't in those extremes. In this current political season now, it has become more common to speak of not just the political right and left, but the, the Twitter right and the Twitter left. Because, for example, on the Twitter left, that's exemplified by Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders. But Joe Biden is a moderate. Bernie Sanders is a progressive. <laughs> you have the progressive wing of the party expressing it, itself now and expresses it, itself more on Twitter than the moderates, even though, as we're seeing in the Democratic primary results, uh, moderates outnumber progressives in that sense of whether they follow a Biden type or a Bernie type. And, and Elizabeth Warren, of course, is there with the progressives, whereas Amy Klobuchar is with the moderates. Same thing is happening on the right. You've got the the uh, Trump right and you've got the uh, anti-Trump or the never-Trumpers who are conservatives like, like Bill Kristol who don't like Donald Trump. You're more likely to hear from the Trump conservatives on Twitter than the moderates, or I should say moderate conservatives, the moderate Republicans. And polls show that uh, in the Republican Party, uh, 85% support Trump and a lot of his attitudes, but they are tend to be overall more moderate than Trump. You don't hear that voice on Twitter as much as you hear the Trump voice. So I think any of us who observe all this or are immersed in the middle of it, we have to take that into account when we're assessing what do Americans really think? What are Americans really uh, feeling about the current issues? Because that's what's going to make the difference on election day. Those who are the most passionate uh, will be the most likely to show up at the polls, but the majority will still be more moderate. And so we, we always have to take that into account nowadays, I believe. Well, we could spend a whole podcast talking about whether there will be an election or or not. Yeah. The, the fear mongers, you know, are out at work raising this concern but let's just pretend that those are trolls and don't know what they're talking about yeah and there there again you've got paranoids on both sides and the paranoids are more likely to get on the web than those who aren't because uh, uh, uh somebody what's the old line uh, uh just because you're paranoid doesn't mean somebody isn't out to get you a lot, a lot of folks feel that way so even when they think of you as being excessively paranoid they'll be reluctant to say so <laughs> Well, there's always that chance. Well, I think this shows the real value of the kind of work that you do, which does help people process all these different voices. And I think what you provide and what your colleagues who do that kind of work provide is some rationality that is easy to forget when when you only hear from the margins. Well, thank you. Uh, I think uh, you're right in terms of what we try to do, certainly. At the same time, it's very tempting uh, because the more extreme you are, the more extreme you sound. That can be an 
easy way to make ratings if you're a broadcaster or circulation if you're in print. If you move people's passions, uh, you could be more successful in the, in the sense of building an audience, but you can also run the risk of, of distorting the issues. And some people are just totally irresponsible about that. I'd put Alex Jones in that category without fear of much uh, disagreement. That's just one example, but he's just one who's, who's also been irresponsible enough to have legal action taken against him uh, successfully. And we have an atmosphere, though, where we have a free press, and I believe in that. And I think you know, if you look at at uh, the Philippines under Duterte or Turkey right now or in the various other places where they're cracking down on a free press, uh, you can see that we're better off with a free press, even if some people are irresponsible, than we are in trying to uh, suppress free speech. That isn't what America is about. And I think people, one thing I, one thing I found agreement on both the right and the left is that yeah, we need to have free speech. Speaking of social media and free speech and political control of communication, we see now Twitter is taking a step to label a tweet from the president of this country. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that decision. It's ironic, for one thing, Twitter's a private company. They have the right to do whatever they want to do with their content. The First Amendment guarantees that. First Amendment is just aimed at at, uh, uh, controlling the government's attempts to control speech. Twitter, of course, runs the risk, like any other medium, of being accused of bias. And they are, of course, uh, including uh, President Trump himself and numerous uh, Trump supporters say that this is another liberal media conspiracy. Uh, I think Trump privately uh, appreciates being censored because he can play the victim card much more effectively this way. And and so can his supporters. You see, once again, they don't want to give the regular average American a fair shake. That debate goes on and on. There is a responsibility for those of us who are in the uh, privately owned media, whether it's uh, New York Times, Facebook, Twitter, or the Chicago Tribune. I think we have a responsibility to our consumers. We have responsibilities to to the the public. And those include not allowing harmful content to be put out, unfair, untrue, distorted, propagandistic, to be put out just indiscriminately. It's a tough game, a a tough role to play, because Twitter and Facebook are so successful. Just uh, millions of tweets go out every day. And they have to have uh, algorithms to try to screen those tweets and alert them to certain problematic hashtags and all. And then uh, some human has to come in there and be able to make the final judgment as to whether something uh, goes through or not. And that's an enormous mammoth task. I don't expect them, them to catch everything, but I appreciate the effort that they're making. Well, Clarence Page, this has been a great conversation with you, and we're glad you're safe and staying safe and continuing to help us make sense of what's going on around us. Well, thank you, Bob. Thank you very much, and I appreciate talking to you. I'm glad you're safe there, and keep it up. And my best to all my dear friends in the land of the Bobcat.